Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, we are featuring a bonus installment that comes courtesy of Chris Bates, Australia's number one mortgage broker, and myself. Uh, This episode originally appeared on the Australian Property Podcast. If you haven't already checked out the Property Podcast, I'm led to believe it's already the number two property podcast in Australia, and we only launched it around mid last year. You can hear from Pete Wargent, Chris Bates, Amy Lenardi, and myself every week over on the Australian Property Podcast, as well as guests talking about all things in the economy, property, the macro, top-down, bottom-up, you name it, all about wealth creation. Uh, The link to the Australian Property Podcast will be in the show notes. But in this particular episode, because Chris is my mortgage broker and I lucked out with him, Uh, Chris and I do a bit of a catch-up of sorts where we talk about equity release. And I share that this is probably the biggest regret I have from my 20s in terms of not using a property as security for long-term investing. I know a lot of you have asked about this on the Australian Investors Podcast, so I wanted to share it with you. This conversation also takes the form of me getting some free advice from Chris on how I can go about my own property goals. So I do share a little bit of what I'm doing behind the scenes. But if you're interested in how to use property tactically, whether you want to release equity for share investing or investing in ETFs or a business or whatever, this is a fantastic episode for you. is probably one of the biggest unlockers of long-term wealth creation for people with a higher risk tolerance. Now, of course, you should get financial advice and you should definitely speak to your accountant and a trusted mortgage broker like Chris if you do embark down this path as I am intending to do. I do share a bit of personal details in this uh, episode. If you do have any opinions or you have feedback for me, let me know on Twitter or X as it's called now. Uh, my handle is Owen Rask. Uh, beware of imposters. There's been a bit of lively debate, um, not in relation to this episode, but in relation to some of the things I've been talking about property-wise over on uh, X. So jump over, give us a follow or just tweet me and um, 
we'll have a conversation about this episode. If you do have any follow-up questions, uh, for example, we didn't really talk about the pitfalls of debt recycling, uh, something that I'm not really a fan of, but uh, equity release definitely. Um, if you do want us to, to talk about that, Chris is more than happy to come back on. I've got a host of wonderful experts that can talk about this from the legal perspective, the tax perspective, from whatever perspective your question may be. So get in contact with me via the link in the show notes for follow-up questions. Just hit that link that says, ask a question. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Chris is my mortgage broker. He's also uh, the founder of Blusk. He's a former financial advisor and he has appeared on the show before. He also um, is the other half, if you like, of our joint venture for mortgage broking. We've had over 240, I believe, at the time of recording, 240 folks come through the Rask plus Blusk mortgage broking joint venture so far. And I am absolutely thrilled to see that taking shape in the community around that. So um, let me know what you think of this episode. Uh, Drop me a line. However, you can get in contact with me if you like this episode as much as I did recording it and some of the positive feedback we've already had from the property podcast listeners. I'm sure it will be a good one for you. Plenty of thought-provoking insights. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast featuring Chris Bates. Chris Bates, it's so good to see you, man. Always good to chat, Owen. Uh, we just spent 20 minutes talking about life together, right? So, um, yeah, always enjoy our chats, mate, and um, looking forward to this episode. Um, yeah, some, yeah, some things I'm quite passionate about, actually, so hopefully I don't get too excited and um, I can get the points across nice and succinctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, mate, me too, because this is going to be really helpful for me. So I've kind of like cherry-picked this episode a little bit because it's going to be super helpful for me. But over Christmas, we had a lot of folks um, write in and talk about things like debt recycling, whether it's here on the Australian Property Podcast, Australian Finance Podcast, all over the place. Everyone is thinking about this for multiple reasons. Um and so we're going to, throughout this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about my journey with you uh, as my broker over the years and how that's kind of played out and where we are, because many people will be familiar that uh, we have the partnership and over 200 people have now gone through where- Yeah, way more than that now. Yeah. Yeah. Where people can get uh, mortgage broking, finance advice in terms of, you know, what, how should they structure things? How should they, you know, pursue their property strategies? So that's all available in the show notes for anyone, um, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, so just a bit of backstory for those people that don't know. I met Chris quite a few years ago. Um, we recorded a podcast in our, own, our old Hawthorne office way back in the day. It must have been like 2017. Um, and since then, obviously, you've grown blast with Ben and the team and um, it's turned into this wonderful thing and we partnered last year uh, to launch the Australian Property Podcast and uh, launch Mortgage Broken Together and that type of thing. Um, but my journey started a few years ago, as you know, Chris, uh, trying to get into the house that I'm recording from right now. Um, we paid just under $700,000 for this house. I followed your advice around what types of property we should be looking for. Um, in the types of areas that we wanted and how we could, you know, get the right asset within our budget. Mm. And it's been pretty good, mate. It's been really good. And um, since then, we've had the house revalued thanks to your team and that sort of thing. Um, We've maintained a pretty good interest rate. Uh, And now we're at a point where we've got a bit of equity built up in the house. Um, It's been a bit soft, obviously, in the the market locally over the last year or so, but still got a fair bit of equity in, in the property. So... Now the question is for us, like, what do we do with it, right? And this is where a lot of the questions came in over Christmas where we talked about um, 
debt recycling and these types of things with a lot of listeners of the show. So we'll get to that in a minute. But firstly, a lot of people are in this similar situation, Chris, uh, that have come through the pipeline and reached out to your team, um, whether they're trying to borrow or for the first time or whether they're in a similar situation to us where they're looking to make that next step. They're either upgrading or so on and so forth. And a few people are in that situation where they probably can't borrow the amount that they want right now. So what are some of the strategies that people might be able to take, if any, right now? Like are the things that you're seeing in the clients that are coming through over the past three to six months? And this is for you, more like the first time by trying to enter the market, like how can they improve their capacity? Yeah, and even people like we hear in the news, mate, like things like people that I think they call them mortgage prisoners where they want to do yeah. things with their property, but maybe they can't get the refinancing, uh, I guess, to the yeah. level that they want or even upgrade. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, they're, they're different sort of challenges, I guess. Uh, the irony at the moment is uh, prices have been going up um, mm-hmm. and borrowing capacity is, if anything, the tightest it's ever been. Um, you know, you can lucky to get four, four and a half times your income now, whereas in 2021, it might have been seven or seven and a half times. Um, wow. You know, back in 2014, I was, uh, you know, 2013 as I started as a broker, I was playing around with calculators and I was just like, are you sure this is right? Like I can leverage my income 10, 12, 14 times um, if I structure it this way across different banks. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that it's nowhere near as it's been, you know, ridiculously tightened over the last decade. Um, and so a real challenge right now, particularly for that first home buyer we spoke about is that, um, and the market the prices haven't fallen. If not, they might've even gone up, um, you know, all time highs in places like Perth and Brisbane, but, not far off in in Sydney. Melbourne's gone a bit slower in terms of their growth, um, but uh, borrowing capacity the tightest ever been. And so that that number that they can borrow based on their income and what they really want to uh, enter the market at that price point just isn't enough. You know, whereas before you went to a bank, you know, five ten years ago, oh, the bank's going to lend you more money than you want. Oh, I don't really want a million dollars, you know, sir. I only want six hundred thousand, right? So there was a they would lend you too much money. Um, it's definitely not the case. I mean, what can you do about it? Um, it's really hard because, you know, the tightening around lending means that, you know, uh, it's not like it's easy to get a loan unless you've got the income there. All the checks, the verifications there. So really you just got to earn more income and then reduce any, you know, have no debts basically. So, you know, getting mm. rid of HEX, getting rid of credit card limits, but also debts, um, getting rid of car loans, um, and, uh, and and potentially how you structure your income can matter, whether it's self-employed, a contractor, you know, how your bonus is, you can change the lender, you know, so really going to the lender that suits your income situation. Right. Um, the differences across banks, you know, is kind of minor now. It used to be a lot more because there was all these kinks in um, different borrowing mm-hmm. capacity calculators. So, yes, you can get a little bit more if you go to the best bank. Um but it's not dramatically more like it was. And so I would mm. say that, you know, the real thing you want to do is drive your income up. That's where you get the multiplier. Um, you know, an extra 20K income might increase your borrowing capacity, an extra 90K, you know. Um, and then mm. once you've done all the things that reduce your borrowing capacity, get rid of all your debts basically. Um, living expenses is something that, um, you know, y- yes, you can reduce it, but you can't really reduce it any further if you're under the minimum anyway the bank would use. Um and so, you know, a lot of people think, well, I'll just spend less and I'll be able to borrow more money. Well, no, because the bank will apply a minimum expenditure anyway. So that doesn't really help you. Um, okay. And so that would be my advice is just really focus on your income and get rid of anything that reduces your borrowing capacity like debts and credit cards. Okay. So potentially like it's like clean the decks basically, like wash out all that 
that stuff in the background. But here's a question for you. Say, like, so I just recently started, um, some people know this already, so I just recently started a new business where I help other business owners with marketing and coaching and that sort of stuff. Now, say that business that I've got as a side hustle at the moment, say that starts to make consistent income. Let's just, let's just paint like a, a, a great picture. Let's say it brings in $100,000 of income for round figures right, over the next 12 months. If I was trying to think about getting into property or even indeed like borrowing more money right now, would the bank allow that amount of money, which would be $100,000, pretty substantial, would they take that into account if I was trying to uh, you know, borrow to upgrade all that, or would I have to wait a few years? Does that make sense? Uh, in your situation, it might be a bit different because I don't know how you're running it with the ABN and you're running a business within a business and things like that. But let's say most people haven't got that luxury, right? So it might be their first business, their first side hustle. Um, what a bank really wants to see is how long you had your ABN for. So if you're thinking right. about doing this, just go and get yourself an ABN even before you started the business, right? Because the length of the ABN is one of the, uh, just the things that a bank would really want to see. So you don't have to be trading, but you just need your length. So what was the date you registered? Um, then they're going to look at your trading history, right? Um, generally speaking, you know, they want the ABN to be two years. There are lenders that might do low doc loans and, and things like that with less than that. Um, and they want to see at least two years of trading history. Now, if they could see that um, you've had one really good year in business, and then maybe you could back it up with, maybe another good quarter or two good quarters. Um, so maybe 18 months of, you know, mm. history. Uh, and depending on how that 18 months sits within financial years, like you could get six months and then 12 months, which would be a good outcome. Um, and then a bank might just lend on that last 12 months of your business. And so if you are in that sort of side hustle and you're starting businesses, um, you know, once you get past that 18 months to two years, then potentially you can use it. Um, there are some quirks to this as well. Maybe if you pay yourself a salary from this new business as well, and you do that for six months, um, you know, the banks have innovated there a little bit um, uh, so they can lend more money. Um, and um, <laughs> potentially you can use your salary if it's a business, but you've got to be a little bit careful like that. They, they're they not just ignorant to say, oh, new business set up today and you paid yourself a salary and then that business is making a loss, they'll use that income. They they have ways to make sure that you can um, afford to pay yourself that salary. So, um, yeah, right. Yeah, the ABM matters a bit there. And, um, Interesting. and just making sure a lot of people with new businesses, they try to, and I make sure it doesn't look great on paper, but you know, sometimes borrowing money uh, to then buy assets and those assets go up in value, the growth on those assets um, can offset any tax you would have paid. And so this is a, you know, when you've got accountant mindset, reduce tax, reduce tax, and then potentially people who, you know, do cash for work and things like that, they sometimes forget what they're doing is limiting their ability to scale their wealth, um, which can offset short-term income tax. So just be careful in that situation there if you're starting a business. Um, yeah, you know, mm. sometimes play by the rules and pay a bit of tax, um, and that's not a bad thing. For sure. Um, so, just got a couple more questions around this before we get to the recycling element because it all ties in. So, in effect, I would probably be better off. Like, it's not going to happen for me, but if I could have a choice between, say, earning an extra thirty grand in my like PAYG, my salary, that would be better off than trying. I'd be better off doing that probably than trying to start a side hustle if I wanted to buy in the next twelve to eighteen months. It sounds like that's a lower risk way to go about it. And more bang for your buck. Yeah, I mean, for you, I'd probably be just running that business within a business and your business profits would go up and you could use it straight away. But, you know, for most people, if if you go, oh, I could make 30K through a side hustle and it's going to take me two years to increase my borrowing capacity, whatever that goes up, the prices might run on you, right? Whereas if you could, you're right, get a promotion um, and your salary went up 30000 that could be used straight away. 
You know, as soon as you get a payslip, this is the irony with lending, you know. Someone um, mm. can get a new job, even on probation. Probation doesn't matter for a lot of the time. Um and they can borrow on that money straight away. Someone can start a business and say, hey, goodbye <laughs> borrowing any money for two or three years till that business is making a decent profit. Um, and so whenever someone's in this employed to self-employed model, you know, get all your lending ducks lined up first because you can potentially have to sit out of the market. And, you know, we all know how business growth is. It's a lot of business fail. A lot of businesses take a lot longer than you expect sure. to, to start to hit their straps. So one final question then, which it applies to basically everyone. if if you're trying to borrow money, uh, I'm assuming that you need to have your most current tax return done. So, for example, the year that's gone, I have still haven't done my tax return. Shocker, I know. But uh, through my accountant, I still have a little bit of time left. I need to get that done. Like I need to get all the taxes up to date correct before I should approach a, a bank or go through uh, a broker. Not technically right. So, basically, you'd think that the bank would want to see 2024, uh, three tax returns. Um, we're, mm. we're recording this in early 2024. However, there is a time when, you know, that's not due for the ATO yet, right? And so, the, yeah, no. the bank would say, hey, you can still give us the 2023s. Look, depending, and, you know, this is sometimes what we have to do with self-employed clients where we know 2024 wasn't a good year or 2023 wasn't a good year. Is there an opportunity to use a year's income before? Um and that's totally fine. The banks will assess it on that. It's just you've got and, – and this is a game that we play. Or sometimes we say to clients like 2023 was a really good year for you. All right Let's now. get that tax return lodged. Let's get that lodged and then support that with a couple of bazers because 2024 is even better. And then the bank would forget what happened in 2022, you know. Um, yeah. And so it's, it is – it was self-employed. It is a game of, you know, looking at your business and how it's going. And, um, and sometimes you have to, you know, pay expenses early to, you know, then create more profit in the next year. And there's this little things that you have to do um, because it's not as black and white as just, hey, your salary is X, I'll, I'll lend you Y. Um, and so if you're, you're self-employed, absolutely, that's where a great broker will be there as a trusted mm-hmm. partner for you alongside your accountant. Um, we, we, we're talking with them and saying, uh, yeah, I, you know, sometimes the accountant doesn't want to lodge it. <laughs> don't, don't, don't lodge it now. Then you've got to pay all this tax and blah, blah, blah. And, no, we go. No, no. We it need, we need to lodge it for lending, and um, we we yeah. argue the reasons why. So get yourself a good broker sense. if you're self-employed. Yeah, absolutely. I can vouch for that. Um, so basically, our goal as a family is to hopefully find ourselves some land, and hopefully it's not that far away from the city. And now everyone in Sydney is listening to this. They're like, "You can actually do that." And I'm like, "Yeah, we're in Melbourne, so we can still kind of do this," um, but. The the reality is, you know, Chris. That's a f- to be clear. That's a few million bucks even here in Melbourne, right? And that's over a few years. So it's a fair bit of money. And when you're trying to raise a family and do all that, it's not easy from a lending perspective, as far as I know. So one of the things that I regret in my twenties, and Pete and I talked about this on the show not too long ago, was that I wish in my early twenties I had bought a property using the money that I had because I did have enough money, uh, and then use the equity that would have paid that would have been created in that property to then buy other assets, whether it was an investment property or whether it was shares or whatever. Um, can you explain basically mm-hmm. like what is that? What is that strategy? How does it work at large? And then maybe we'll drill into it a bit. Yeah, it's like that um, you know, you want to have your cake and eat it too, you know, that sort of saying, right? Mm. I've probably said that wrong. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, basically, the, what, what we see is one of the issues, um, and financial advisors are guilty of this. We work a lot with advisors and sometimes we have to retrain them on their thinking here. It's not what the financial advice textbooks used to say. Um, mm. And one of the attractions, what we see is when someone builds a share portfolio first, um, and that's great, you're investing. You're investing for your future. Um, and uh, it's very hard to leverage a share portfolio. Mm. Um, yes, you can do it through, you know, exchange-traded funds. And, yes, you can start to get a bit tricky and take some, you know, uh, severe leverage if you want to. But that's not without its risks, right? And mm. um, margin loans are much harder. So you can't leverage your money as safely as I would say then as you can into property. Um, and one of the things that we see is that uh, when someone builds a share portfolio first, they generally don't leverage it. You know, it's just one of those things. Debt yeah, is bad. Just put money in. Yeah, yeah and to, and there's and a compounding dollar cost averaging. We're not saying you shouldn't invest. I think that's all great. It's just you're not getting the, the benefits of leverage. And so what ends up happening, we see, is that someone at some point then says, "Oh, I actually want to buy a property." So then they have to sell their share portfolio because it's expensive. They need a big deposit, so all their assets go into a property. Um, they pay capital gains tax on their share portfolio, um, and then they're out of the market. Now, what happens? The issue here is if they've delayed entering the property market because they just wanted to focus on their share portfolio, then the share they're buying properties at a higher price potentially. Um, yeah. And so um, that's the opportunity cost there um, is usually bigger than the growth on the share portfolio, particularly if you're doing things like ETFs and you're not trying to pick stocks and um, mm. time markets, which you know we don't need to preach to the convert on your clients here. So. Um, yeah, what one of the things though with property though is that you don't you can do both. So if you do buy a good asset, um, once that property builds equity within it, then you start getting back into your share portfolio. So you release that equity and you start to build an investment property. And why that's uh, beneficial is you've got a debt attached to that um, equity that you use to buy shares. Whereas if you just buy those shares outright with cash, there's no deduction to it because you just use money out of the bank. You haven't borrowed money to buy those shares. Um, and particularly when someone uses the money of their cash to buy a home, that then gives them a non-deductible debt on their home, which is good. So they want to pay that down. And then when they build equity in that home, then they can use that equity to buy shares with a tax-deductible debt. Um, and so this is really just an understanding of um, good debt and bad debt. So, you know, bad debt on, you know, yes, we've got the credit cards. Yes, we've got car loans, you know, depreciating assets, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to pay. Mm. Don't hear too much about that anymore. But um, <laughs> The you know you've got bad debt like that yeah it's it's not going to get you any investment return, but bad debt is also I would say considered to be owner occupied debt, particularly right. if you haven't if you haven't got an owner occupied house that's growing in value, because you know the cost of that plus cost of owning um, you know potentially be better off uh, you know owning you know uh, renting, um, so yeah when you've got a situation when you're thinking about oh I want to really pay down my home debt that's the bad stuff it's non deductible. And I want to always try to increase my investment debt to buy good assets. Um, and so we see that as good debt. If you had to split it from just a mortgage point of view, home debt's not great debt. Really got to be careful having too much and making sure that you're using it right. Um, but investment debt, well, yeah, you can buy good assets. So this is interesting for us because obviously, like I said before, like the house has gone up over the last few years um, based on some valuations and so on. We've paid a little bit of the debt back. We haven't um, we haven't really gone gung-ho on paying the debt back. And the reason is we've used the money for other things, whether it's businesses or whether it's um, even improvements on the house uh, to try and expand the value of the property and also make it more livable. But one of the things um, that I've considered now is, well, if we do want to get into that farm in a few years, and that's quite a leap from where we are today, right? It's, like it's, a, it's quite a leap, Chris. So, 
you know, do we think about using that equity to then buy an investment property and have that investment property, say, for three to five years? Or do we try and upgrade this home to like an intermediate home? Do we do something else? Um, that decision seems a bit more, un- we're a bit more uncertain of that. Obviously, my partner, she's got a really consistent, really consistent income, like probably as consistent as they come. Um, my income as a business owner is starting to accelerate. So that kind of adds the context. I mean, we can't be super specific here today, but like just generally speaking, is a three to five year window enough? Should we be just be saving more? Should we be doing something else? Like, how do you think about that? It all comes down to that window, right? And um, and and how realistically is your longer term plans? I'm not saying yours isn't. Um, it's, but, it's, you yeah. know, um, sometimes yeah. people do, you know, have a dream that you know really potentially is unattainable. And, um, you know, just it just um, unfortunately the realities of their income um, and their growth and trajectory would work um, and, you know, not every income has infinite caps on how much you can earn, right, um, and the challenges with borrowing capacity um, and the challenges to bridge that gap from where they are today to where they want to be um, and, and how long is that going to take because what we sometimes see is, oh, you know, I'd love a house in, you know, these certain suburbs of Melbourne or Brisbane or Sydney and what are they worth today? Um and I'm in this apartment today and I want to get there in a few years. Well, you know, that farm's not going to be what it is today in five, ten years' time. Um, That's what I'm and, thinking, yeah. And the the challenge is, is that, you know, to, to actually make that happen, what income would you have to have or what cash would you have to have? How, how realistic is that? Um, and sometimes we've got to be a bit of a party pooper there to say, look, it's, it's I, I get it, but potentially you're better off to say, hey, let's make some compromises now. Do we just go on holiday, you know, regularly? You know, news Airbnb um, and trying to make it happen full time and just get a house that's going to, you know, like sometimes you, or, you know, do we just make it work in a three bed house rather than trying to get to the four bed, two bar parking, you know, in the capital city, you know, uh, because by the time we think we can get there, the prices have probably gone up as well. Um, mm. And then if you delay investing decisions because you're trying to keep up as much cash as you can to out to outrun markets, basically. It's really hard because they're moving on you, and particularly if they're higher priced and they're good assets, they're likely to be moving at a good rate. You know, um, it's different if you want to say move to an, a property that um, is more expensive, but it's not in a strong growth market. Um, and so you can potentially say, well, I could probably invest and outperform how much that's going to go up. So, for example, with you, Owen, if, if we thought, you know what, I reckon we could get there in three years through the trajectory of your income. Uh, plus through saving extra cash that you need for a deposit. Um, personally, I'd probably just go for it, you know. But if we thought it was yeah. you know, unlikely it's going to take five to seven years at best, it may take longer, then I would be saying, look, is this really going to be attainable? If not, rather than sort of hoping this comes off dramatically in five to ten years' time um, and the risk of that not happening and that market running on you, is it worth us just doing something today? You know, yeah. get 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 user get get you know get investing, not so much focusing on this long term dream of upgrading into something. Mm-hmm. Then you go, well, what do I do? Do I do I buy another investment property? Do I buy some shares, or do I upgrade my home? And it's very interesting you said that because that's often what sometimes people forget. Um, yeah, and you know, the, the buying shares is a, is a is a pretty easy decision. You know. Um, I would say three to five years in shares. You know, any financial advisor would tell you it's a very, very short runway and it's very hard to 
to know because, you know, you look back in time, three years could be really good, like a 2009 mm. to 2012. If you said it wasn't good to invest for three years, well, you probably would have lost 100%, right? It went up, yeah. it doubled in, you know. Uh, but if you invest in 2006 and sold in 2009, um, Mm. That would have been a horrible three years. And so usually why they say it's five to seven years is that if there is one of these bad periods, you don't the the, the positive years outweigh that negative year and you still get a compounded good good return. But yeah. then there's different times in the market. You know, there's post booms, there's a you know, at, after crashes, there's after real and where there's higher risk factors buying shares that, you know, it's not all three year periods you and you know, you know when you're entering. The thing is you don't know when you're selling sometimes with shares. So for example, um, you think it's a good time to enter the, the market, not that you're trying to time markets in shares. And then three years' time, your income with your business goes really well and you think, I want to buy this farm. What happens in 2027? There's a, you know, yeah. Trump's taken over the world again and there's a stock market crash or something, right? <laughs> or there's a war yeah. somewhere. And that share portfolio has dropped 30%. Um, and then that stopped you upgrading into the farm, let's say, because yeah. you, um, you basically burnt your equity. Um, and now you can't do it. And so you've just got to be careful with short timeframes and shares. But the problem with buying shares, so when you look at those options, you're more than likely going to, going to be able to buy a smaller amount because your equity is going to be limited. Um, and you're yeah. not going to then go re-leverage it and buy a margin loan and probably buy geared funds or then go into um, you know different like options and futures. This is not what people do, right? So um, I would say, though, if you've got enough equity and you, then you've also got enough borrowing capacity and this is a real challenge for someone, then you've got a decision to say, well, instead of buying shares of 100000 do I go and buy a $600,000 or $700,000 investment property? Um, and am I better to buy that than buying $100,000 of shares? And I think the time frame probably increases. I think you're buying investment property over anything five to seven years. I think it's pretty gutsy because with property, you, your costs to transact are much higher. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got potentially 10% of transaction costs when you add in stamp duty and selling costs and weight and holding costs and sunk costs of things you didn't really need to fix. Um, and so that would be the, the conundrum there. The final, I mean, I'm probably explaining this a bit lengthy. The final option there is if you didn't have a great asset where you are now, Owen, um, and you thought that you didn't want to, and you thought that maybe the farm was a real pipe dream and you thought that, you know what, we do need to upgrade because we've got a family and we can't live where we are. Mm. And I could use that extra capacity to get into a better asset and a better asset is likely to grow faster over the next five to seven years and it's going to better suit my lifestyle. I would potentially go for that strategy because you get an asset that's growing tax-free, you get the lifestyle benefit and you would likely get a compounding growth on what usually is your biggest asset, um, uh, which is your home. But most people spend less on their investment properties than they do on their home. Um, And so that's the third option there, which a lot of people forget about. Yeah, well, because that's something you've always talked to me about, not just here on the podcast, but like just in general. Is like in the past, maybe say when you started broking, people getting 10, 12 times their income, they were pursuing those many properties type strategies. But there seems to be a lot of sense from a tax perspective, from a stress perspective, to have fewer properties, even if it's just one, and to make the most of that principal place of residence. And then you still have the option for you know, redrawing equity and investing that in whatever way you see fit, like we are now. And so I guess a question then for a lot of people that listen to this uh, and also for myself, at what point do you think it is worth redrawing equity on your property? So what I mean by that is like in terms of numbers, like let's say someone is listening to this and they have a, 
let's do, we'll just do round figures. Let's say they've got a million dollar property that's recently been valued at a million dollars, right? And their loan is $750,000. So there's 25% equity in that property. Is that someone, if they've got good income, say, is that someone that you think should be maximizing or at least thinking about maximizing the equity in their home? Or is that not enough? Is it like, where, did, where, did, how do you think about that? Look, so there's what I consider best practice advice, right, which comes from uh, a broader thinking around like the financial planning background, right, and saying like what would technically put me in a better position, right, um, than I am today. Mm. And arguably that person there, um, what we would do is firstly we'd want to get a good valuation um, and this can be very different bank to bank. Uh, there's right. also things called desktop vows, which yeah. uh, can be done on a desktop versus someone going to the property, which can sometimes be very generous to the borrower. So firstly, if you can get yourself a good valuation, you're more likely to have more equity, right? So in that situation, they got a good um, valuation. It was a million dollars. They only had seven fifty dollars of debt. Well, basically, most banks will lend up to 80% no problems. Uh, assuming you got the income, which you probably need to be on about two hundred dollars or something in this situation, maybe a little bit less. Um, and... Then you could release fifty thousand dollars, so your seven fifty could increase to eight hundred thousand. Wouldn't increase the existing loan. You'd have another split. You'd have a fifty thousand dollar loan split. Right now, where could this go wrong? Like it would go wrong if you got sticky fingers. You went and went on a trip to Disneyland, <laughs> um, and you went. Fifty and grand burnt, doesn't get much. <laughs> you went. And, you went and burnt that money, um, and you spent it on things that didn't increase your asset values, and you just spent it on lifestyle spending. Because what you've done is you just used your, your house as a credit card. Now, people do this every day. Now, now we would yeah, don't recommend sure. it. Um, but old, we saw a client a few weeks ago that, you know, had done this and a lot of times. Um, and, you know, it was a ticking time bomb because they've, they've done it off great price growth, but now they're almost at 80% and they've burnt all their equity on lifestyle. Um, and so you, you don't do it for those reasons. But if you haven't got sticky fingers, most people listening to podcasts like this, they're over that sort of initial hurdle of, um, you know, mm. running huge credit card debts and, you know, spending way more than they earn. If, you, if you've sort of got those savings habits and that you've got some impulse control, then what that money would do was just sit there in an offset account. Now, if you decide to use it, um, you've got to be careful what you use it for. But if you don't use it, it doesn't cost you any money. It's fully offset. You're not paying any interest. Um, now, fast forward 12 months' time, you lose your job. What happens? You, you, you get a bit tight on the mortgage. We've got 50K buffer. The, that yeah. to me is a use, well use of that money. It's not spending on a holiday. You're using it to stop selling assets. If a great opportunity came up and there was a stock market crash, you could potentially go, well, now actually I really do want to enter the markets. It's lower risk now after a crash. Um, if I want to spend a 50000 on adding you know, really cost-efficient renovation to the place so that I spend 50 k and add 200 k to the value or 100 k that's potentially good value, potentially if you then gives you an option to sell one day and make that 50 to 100 or 200 mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if in six, 12 months' time you lose your job and you can't refinance, um, well, you know, because you've already, you've already got the money there and you've, um, you know, if the valuation falls, property markets don't always go up, right? So if, it, if you've got a good valuation and then, you know, 2022 happened, well, you've already locked your, your, your million-dollar value doesn't come back and they don't, they don't revalue your house and say, hey, on a sec, it was a million, now it's 900, we're going to do a margin call on your property, on your home loan. That'd be a big issue. They did do that in property markets, hence why they won't do it because the stabilization of the property market is inherent to Australia's wealth. Um, mm. And so that's one of the things that gives you confidence of borrowing equity on your home is that, you know, when you do margin calls, you're always nervous. Like what happens if markets fall? Have I got enough buffer? Because 
you get 24 hours, if that, to solve those margin calls sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, with property markets, even if you potentially go to negative equity, that they won't recall the property on you. Uh, so that situation, that million-dollar property is up to seven fifty, and you've got $800,000 loan, they wouldn't force you to sell it because it's not in the bank's interest. Um, mm. So that makes- that's, that's, that's the truth around building equity. To me, any equity is worth getting access to. Um, you know, because it's not going to cost you anything. And if you've got a great broker that's working with you long term, they'll be happy to do it for you within reason. Maybe you ask them for five or 10 grand, they might be a little bit like, oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, but, you know, and they don't get paid on it. So that's the thing. We get paid on net on offset. When I started in broking, you did get paid on it. So there's an argument that brokers were just leveraging people up and releasing equity so they could increase their profits. So there was a huge conflict there. Now it's done on net of offset. So we only get paid on that money if you ever use that money. Um, and uh, and, um, and we we've gone we do cash outs of millions of dollars for clients um and you know we we work a lot with advisors that can help them invest that money etc um but yeah that's that's the the truth so okay sorry i know this is going to get gone over a bit but one final question there let's say that our income had improved right even though borrowing capacity across the board is down let's say income had improved Mm. Could you could you redraw up to a hundred percent? Not a hundred percent, but you know when someone's paid lenders mortgage insurance, um, you potentially got to be careful refinancing out of the bank that you paid lenders mortgage insurance. This is a mistake a lot of people make when they buy their first home and they leave their broker and they go to another broker um, to refinance their loan under eighty percent to get a slightly better rate. They lose. The lenders' mortgage insurance that they're paid at a bank um, because oh, it's, a bank. Okay, it's right, to yeah. a certain bank. So let's say they did a loan at ING um, and they paid lenders' mortgage insurance there, but they got a cheaper rate switching to St. George. Um, now they could only refinance up to 80% of the St. George value, but if they went back to ING, and I think ING would do this, so a little bit more on the conservative side, <laughs> uh, they weren't doing it last year, so maybe they would. Um, they, uh, you can potentially borrow up to the percentage that you borrowed initially. So let's say that was 80% or 90% and either not have to pay any more LMI or pay a little bit of LMI because you can reuse your LMI. Ah, okay. Um, so that's a real, but once you refinance, you lose it, right? Now there are certain professions, doctors, they get yeah, lots of benefits of with lending, accountants, you know, chartered accountants, uh, lawyers, yeah. you know, a lot of the medico industry. You know, and prof- even there's, it's it's even getting more broad than that. But they can do things like borrow up to ninety percent, ninety five percent, a hundred percent, etc. Like that. But you know, if you're not in that camp, generally speaking, when you want to borrow more than eighty percent, you're going to pay lenders' mortgage insurance. And so for them, it doesn't usually make sense to release the equity unless it's really needed. Um, and we very rarely do this. Um, we'll we'll release equity above eighty percent and force someone to pay LMI. Because that cost is a really, it's a high cost for access to capital. So not only yeah. you're paying an interest rate, but you're paying a premium to get access to that capital. And that usually increases the interest rate really dramatically. And you go, that's a really expensive way to access money. I've got to really make sure I use it wisely. Um, so be very careful if someone ever recommends you to pay LMI to release equity um, because often it's, it's, I would explore lots of other routes before you do that. Yeah, cool. That's, that's, that's really helpful. So, if I just recap some of the key elements of this episode, then the first one would be like, if you're in the position where you need to borrow, think of start moving now to get rid, just clean the, clean the decks, get that, that crap out of your financial situation, things like credit cards and that, like do what you can, sell some stuff, get it off your personal balance sheet, but focus on the, 
the increase in your PAYG as a matter of like priority. Um, a lot of people out there think they start side hustles. That might be the way to go. And it may be, but sounds like salary, you know, pay rises, that type of stuff. Jobs market's pretty good at the moment. Um, so that might be a bargaining chip that you can put on the table with your employer. Um, the other thing would be to, as you were saying, Chris, if I'm not mistaken, is just making sure that you are aware of like your the value of your property, what your strategy is longer term. Because there may be things that are unrealistic, but things that are realistic that are better than your current situation that you mm. should pursue. Um, if you're a if you're an employee, sorry, if you're a, a pair, sorry, an ABN holder or something like that, get it, get it early, get it early. Um, if you're thinking about going into business, but maybe hold off on that if you're trying to borrow first. Um, just think about that strategically, longer term. If you're in my situation, you're trying to upgrade. Now is the time to run those realistic calculations. When we're chatting just before, Chris, I actually brought up the little spreadsheet that I've put together, and I was trying to think about well, what would be four times that debt on that property on this and that. <laughs> And uh, it's a lot. I'd have to increase my income pretty considerably. So um, I may need to be a bit more creative or go back to the drawing board on a few of those things. But um, this has been super useful for me because we do have a bit of equity in the home. I need to do my tax return, I would imagine. Um, But this is the thing that I wanted to chat to you about because I want to unlock some of that. Like why wouldn't I, if I'm a younger person, gainfully employed, long-term perspective on investing, why wouldn't I maximize the opportunity that I have in front of me to get assets into my own name and start growing my wealth in the background. It makes a lot of sense. So um, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I think I, um, you know, in terms of finishing off that debt recycling thing, we could do another episode on it because it's, there's a lot of intricacies to how you actually get the optimal result and optimal result really matters, you know, in terms of just making sure that you know, whenever you're borrowing money to invest, hence why a lot of advisors are against it, is because the co- you've got to pay get recoup that cost of capital, and your returns after tax have got to be higher than that. And so then your chance of outperforming that is reduced unless you invest it wisely. You you know hold it for a decent amount of time. And so a lot of people, there's this debt recycling idea. The recycling bit is dangerous because what people are saying is, I'll buy shares, use equity, buy shares, sell shares to then pay off my debt, to then recycle, mm. to re-borrow. And I think this is where a lot of people get unstuck. That's, yeah, that's, and that's it, yeah. What no, you buy, I, yeah. I would be thinking longer term than that. Like yes. n- not <laughs> just kind of like money from the, the loan goes into shares, hold it for a few months or a year, then put it back in there and then do it again. Like that's – I'm thinking yeah. like 5, 10, 15 years. That's what I'm trying to focus yeah. on, not like – yeah, that and seems that, crazy to me. <laughs> and that's debt release for buying investment assets, whether it's property or shares. That can be we can have that conversation. That depends on how much equity you've got, how much borrowing capacity you've got, um, what your future plans are with upgrading and, and things like that. So it's it's not such a property versus shares. Just just um, how much equity you've got. You know your age. There's so many things that will go into that conversation. But just be careful. If you see someone offering you this, you know, kooky strategy where it's buy, oh, you know, man. release, buy shares, sell them in a year. You got to pay capital gains tax. You got to time markets, um, and uh, it, it sounds great and it looks great on paper. But ultimately, it's it's not investing with the right mindset. Right mindset is what Owen has is ingrained in him. Is buy good assets and hold them. Um, and so yeah. my idea is, if you're going to release equity to buy shares, hold those shares. Don't you know and service that debt over the next 20, 30 years if you can. 
and hold those shares and don't sell them. You know, buy good. You know, um, and so let's we can always unpack that if people have got more questions. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's the thing that we should say. So, folks, if you like this episode, please write into us. Um, Chris and Pete obviously appear on the Australian Property Podcast every week, but these episodes tend to go everywhere across the RAS network. Um, we want to do a lot more of these. So, it, like, if you're in my situation and you want to come on and chat to any of the guys or myself or anyone on the shows. Please write into us. Tell us you want to you want to talk about your situation. Obviously, we have to be careful about financial services laws. But when it comes to property, it's a bit of a different thing. When it comes to business, it's a bit of a different thing. And when it just comes to just goal setting these types of things, we can talk about those things pretty freely with you. So write into us, or if you have questions on this, Chris and I will come back on and we'll do a hour long Q and A session on these types of things. So. Let us know what you think. There's a link in your podcast player that says ask a question. You can use that just for feedback as well. Select the appropriate podcast. Um, we do love a bit of a creative name on the way through. Uh, and also in that link there, um, in sorry, in the podcast player, there's a link to mortgage broking. Uh, you can click on that as well as a heap of other stuff. Uh, get in contact with the team at Blast. I think the key thing here is like now that I'm a Blast client, I don't need to go back to them and explain my whole life to them. I don't need to do everything again and again and again. I'm on the I'm on the register. They know who I am. I can call them up and speak to the broker and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you reckon? And get someone on your side because if this is something that unlocks value for the rest of your life, seriously, just do it now. Um, Chris, this is heaps of fun, mate. So genuinely really appreciate your time as always. And um, yeah, thanks for spending this hour with me. Absolutely. And looking forward to doing many more over 24 with you. And um, yeah, talk to you all soon. Appreciate the chat. Cheers, mate. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.